Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 2.7, Vicky, the fear of what might happen. Last time, we saw how Otto von Bismarck played everyone in Prussia and the rest of Europe like a fiddle, as he consolidated his own power, sidelined the liberal opposition, and united Germany into the German Empire in 1871. Vicky had been one of the few voices in the kingdom who had seen through his actions, to warn everyone of what a hard-nosed Machiavelli he was, but to no avail. She was forever destined to be an English Cassandra, futilely warning of the dangers to come, but only getting more hated and more ignored. Today, we will be taking a look at Vicky's time as Crown Princess of Germany, particularly focusing on her relationships with her ever-expanding brood of children. But before we get going, I have two announcements. The first is that I've contracted some sort of nasty, lurgy thing. Now, on the plus side, my voice is deeper, and no doubt sexier, on the downside, it may collapse halfway through the recording, so just FYI. The second is that I'll be attending PodCon in Seattle in January. PodCon is in its second year, and it's basically a big, huge gathering of podcasters and podcast fans. I'm not speaking or anything, nowhere near famous enough for that. I'm mostly going to see what it's like and maybe attend a few talks. If any of you are also going or live in the area, then get in touch. Maybe we can arrange a meetup. Okay, let's get started. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. The first German parliament, the Reichstag, saw something of a liberal rejuvenation. 
The German unification had been achieved. Not the way they wanted, but at least it was there, and the constitution, well weakened, was also still there. Moreover, the emperor was old, and the heir, Fritz, would surely dismiss Bismarck when he came to the throne. There was still hope that the conservative charge of the last few years could be halted and reversed. Now, lest you think that liberalising Prussia would bring nothing but roses, one of the focuses of the liberals in these years was an attack on the Catholic Church. As avowed nationalists, they were deeply suspicious of these papist types, whom they saw as owing their allegiance to Rome, not Berlin. Both Fritz and Bismarck supported these policies, which included banning the Jesuits, but once again, stood opposed, was Vicky. She was a Protestant, but had always opposed anti-Catholic oppression. When reproached for this by her mother, she replied, quote, If others are not of my way of thinking, I can regret it and think them difficult to understand, but I do not blame them. Bismarck was so in favour of these laws that it was suspected that he was doing so just to win favour with Fritz. He saw, as everyone did, that the emperor was ageing and wanted to maintain his position after the succession. Even Vicky respected him as a politician and leader, even if they disagreed on almost everything. Quote, The idea that Bismarck has made us great, has made us feared, and therefore he is perfectly infallible, is the prevailing one. I do not wish to deprecate Bismarck's talents and merits, his energy and quickness, but I do consider him and his principles and his policy a misfortune, and the means he uses most dangerous. Indeed, Bismarck equally respected Vicky as an adversary. It's why he spent so much time and energy trying to destroy her. Indeed, he couldn't believe that, after all he'd done for Prussia, and all he'd done to her, she did not just knuckle under. In her biography of Vicky, Hannah Pakula writes, quote, What is remarkable is the older man's sense of bewilderment. Why could he not sweep Vicky along in his political wake, as he had most other liberals? Why, seeing that his policies had proven so successful, while her moral quibbles were so unpopular, did she not simply accept the empire he had forged, and which she would one day help rule? Why were the means so much more important to her than ends? Whenever anything went well, he made sure that neither Fritz nor Vicky got any credit, even if they were instrumentally involved. When it went badly, even if it had nothing to do with them, he made sure they got all the blame. Now, I need hardly give you more examples of this, we saw so many last time, but I'll do so anyway. In 1875, there occurred something called the War in Sight Crisis, which was basically Germany trying to interfere in French affairs and manoeuvring towards perhaps a new war. However, the new French foreign minister saw through Bismarck's game and called him on it, leading the other great powers of Europe to declare, in no uncertain terms, that any German aggression against France would not be tolerated. Chastened, Bismarck was forced into a humiliating climb-down. He thought for about, I don't know, a millisecond before blaming Vicky for this, saying that she and Fritz had formed a hostile clique around the king who was too weak to resist and was undermining his own superb work. Then there was the occasion of her brother's wedding. Vicky was always Victoria's chief family marriage agent in Europe. Her brother, Afi, was keen on a marriage to the daughter of the Russian Tsar, Grand Duchess Maria, but their mother opposed it for political and religious reasons. 
As the chief anglophile at the Prussian court, Vicky had been lambasted by the pro-Russia lobby, led of course by Bismarck, pretty much from the moment that she had arrived. Despite this, not only did she support this marriage, but she actually went to St. Petersburg to attend it. While she wasn't especially fond of the city, she did get on well with Tsar Alexander II, who you may remember as the young man who had swept her mother off her feet as a princess. Indeed, the Tsar presented Vicky with a very expensive bracelet as a memento, and this scared the bejesus out of the reactionary crazies back in Berlin. Whipped up into a frenzy by Bismarck, they accused Vicky of trying to negotiate an Anglo-Russian alliance. Patently absurd, but it was believed. But even with all this enmity, Vicky was still managing to do good. She set up the Victoria Lyceum, a female college, where women barred from attending university could attend scholarly lectures. She supported her husband and his support for women's rights, advocating that they should be able to work in professions currently barred to them, such as the railway and postal services. In a society where women were supposed to confine themselves to childbearing, cooking and praying, Fritz and Vicky were really pushing against the establishment. Speaking of children, I have been interspersing the births of Vicky's kids throughout our narrative so far, but I think it's worth quickly catching you up. We start, of course, with Wilhelm, or Willy, as he tends to be called within the family. His birth had been deeply traumatic for mother and child, and resulted in him having a deformed arm and possible minor but permanent brain damage. Next came Charlotte and Henry. Sigismund was her fourth, but he died at the age of just two of meningitis. Moretta had been born just before Sigismund's death, and then came Valdemar in 1868. That's a lot, right? Well, there were to be two more. Sophia, who was born in 1870, and then finally Margaret in 1872, though the family tended to call her Mossy. Vicky was absolutely devoted to her children, but she wasn't exactly the warm and fuzzy type. She had been raised by a demanding father, who had taken a very didactic approach to child-rearing. This wasn't about listening to your child and nurturing what it is they were passionate about, This was about growing Germany's next generation of reformers. It couldn't be left to chance. Vicky's life in Prussia and now Germany had proven that changing hearts and minds in the current and older generation was very hard work, as they had generations of cultural baggage. Far better to get the kids while they were still young and then mould them into what you wanted them to be. That was the theory, anyway, and it had worked an absolute treat with Vicky, but then she was profoundly predisposed to be receptive to this kind of thinking. Of all her siblings, she was the most like her father. The difficulty was finding another load of peas to fit in their pod. And this was yet another avenue that Bismarck used to attack Vicky. He painted her as domineering, too clever by half, a danger to the young, someone who wanted to make them less German. She had house-trained her husband, now she would do it to the children that would rule the new empire one day. The very things that make her so fascinating to us today, her intelligence, her influence, her determination to better herself, these all ostracised her and made people worry for the children that she was raising. Bismarck had tried to peel her husband away from her, but that had not worked. He was too loyal. Now he tried the same, but with her son. Wilhelm had had a difficult childhood. His disability had marked him out as different, as weak in the eyes of society, 
and this was not helped by the various desperate remedies that his parents attempted to use on him. His father spent most of his childhood away on campaign or with the troops, while his mother had tried to instruct him in the ways that he should think, in a way that was contrary to his instincts and what the rest of his family were saying. He was sent to grammar school as a teenager, the first Hohenzollern to go there. It was hoped that being taken away from the ruling elite and surrounded by boys his own age might teach him some humility and entrench a thirst to prove himself. But no. His grades were average at best, and his fellow students treated him as he was, their future emperor. Moreover, this was a disaster for Vicky's plan of liberal indoctrination. As away from her control, he started learning about Prussian history, about its past glories, about how Bismarck was bringing those days back. Vicky would tell him about the glories of her homeland. She told him it was, quote, the freest, the most progressive, advanced and liberal, and the most developed race in the world. But to Wilhelm, the UK was a foreign power, a rival. He didn't see himself as part British, part German. He saw himself as pure-blooded Prussian, an inheritor of the successes and glories of Frederick the Great and Bismarck. The more she talked of British superiority, the more he reacted defiantly. She also didn't help things by never setting aside her teacher's hat and putting on the warm and fuzzy mother's hat. Every interaction that she had with him had to have some sort of lesson involved, some moral guidance, some suggestion for improvement. Here's an example from one of her replies to a letter from him when he was 11. Quote, It is a great pleasure to me to get letters from you, but I cannot compliment you, dearest boy, on your writing. The hand and spelling are both bad, there was hardly a word without a mistake or a letter left out. She sent many letters from him back with corrections. I mean, is it any wonder their relationship suffered? The natural reaction for him was to look at his father for inspiration. He was everything that he aspired to. A military hero, a future emperor, a man of action and glory. But a lot of his admiration was based on the fact that, because he was so rarely about, he could imprint whatever impression he wanted upon him. He loved accompanying his father on military parades, and was fascinated especially by ships. Indeed, the thing he loved most about his mother's country was its navy, and was thrilled when Vicky organised for him to visit naval bases in Southampton and Portsmouth. But more than anything, he wanted to join the army, cover himself in glory while serving in the most elite officer corps in the world. His father had done it, now he wanted a piece of that action. Vicky felt the other end of this quite strongly. She wrote to her mother that, quote, It is sad to do and settle everything without Fritz, who is so much away that everything in the house and about the children's education falls upon me. It is more responsibility than is quite fair. Wilhelm's relationship with his mother in this time can only be described as classic Freudian. One moment he hated her, the next he will be sending her weirdly sexual letters. Check this one out. Quote, I dreamt last night that I was walking with you and another lady. You were discussing who had the finest hands, whereupon the lady produced a most ungraceful hand, declaring that it was the prettiest. I, in my rage, broke her parasol, but you put your dear arm around my waist, led me aside, pulled your glove off, and showed me your dear beautiful hand which I instantly covered with kisses. 
I wish you would do the same when I am in Berlin, alone with you, in the evening. In another, even more disturbing dream, he writes that they were alone in a library, quote, When you stretched forth your arms and pulled me lower to your chair so that my head rested on your left arm, then you took off your gloves and laid your hand gently on my lips for me to kiss it. I instantly seized your hand and kissed it. Then you gave me a warm embrace and, putting your right arm around my neck, got up and walked about the rooms with me. In eight days we will come to Berlin, and then we will do in reality when we are alone in your rooms, without any witnesses. Write to me what you do think about it, and promise to do so really as you did in my dreams to you, for I do love you. This dream is only alone for you to know. There is no serious suggestion that Vicky encouraged this behaviour or reciprocated his advances, but she never quite stamped down on it as hard as one might have thought. She deflected it with humour, but could never really bring herself to really crack the whip. Perhaps some part of her enjoyed being told she was special. Few other people around were doing so. In 1877, he graduated from university and entered the army as a lieutenant in the 1st Regiment of Guards. Yet, he wasn't just a normal, fresh-faced recruit, as Russia, Austria-Hungary and Italy, all keen to get on Prussia's good side, presented him with their highest decorations. Queen Victoria, on the other hand, only gave him a middling decoration, worried that anything higher would go straight to his head. Demonstrating that she had been right, Wilhelm threw such a sulk that he made Vicky beg her mother to send the Order of the Garter instead. Now, I'm going to be focusing quite a bit on Wilhelm going forward, as he would have an outsized impact on Vicky's life, not to mention the whole course of world history. But it is important to remember that she did have a bunch of children, and many of them did not help trigger a war that killed millions. Vicky was deeply involved in all her children's lives, designing their curricula and involving herself in every detail. Her mother, Queen Victoria, delighted in her grandchildren and would always remember to send gifts and letters on their birthdays and host them on visits. This was a stark contrast to Augusta, who was even less interested in her grandchildren as she was in her daughter-in-law. Every one of her children loved visiting their grandmother, even Wilhelm, who deeply respected, quote, Britain's great Queen Victoria, though one suspects that her status as the ruler of a quarter of the globe had something to do with that. Vicky's eldest daughter, Charlotte, or Ditter, as the family called her, was actually even more difficult as a child than Wilhelm. She too had rebelled against her mother's teachings and gone uber-Prussian. But while Wilhelm was developing into a haughty, arrogant man that was the Prussian male stereotype, Charlotte was turning into one of the brats that Vicky had so despised when she first arrived. Uninterested in learning, far more interested in gossip and partying. In 1878, she married one of Prince Wilhelm's university friends, Bernard of Saxe-Meiningen, which Vicky hoped would tame her, but she actually turned into a bit of a Princess Margaret, a wild, acid-tongued socialite whose antics rather embarrassed the rather more prim and proper Vicky. As for Henry, well, he was never the brightest boy, and so Vicky and Fritz did what parents for time immemorial had done with their thick children. They enrolled him in the Navy. But... This would be the making of him. He would serve in the Imperial German Navy right up to the end of World War I, and was commander of the Baltic Fleet throughout that conflict, keeping the superior number Russian Navy at bay. 
His younger brother Valdemar, though, was not so lucky. While rehearsing for a family pantomime performance, the 11-year-old complained of a sore throat. Vicky had, of course, already lost one son, Sigismund, several years earlier, and now tragedy would strike again. He contracted diphtheria, and despite his mother's desperate efforts, died a short while later. Coming shortly after the death of her sister Alice, it was yet another bitter blow for Vicky, a woman who had suffered at least her fair share of sorrow. She wailed to her friend that, quote, We don't bring our babies into the world in order to survive them. In another letter, written after the funeral, she wrote sadly, quote, We can hardly realise yet that we have lost the darling boy who was our pride and delight. We had fondly hoped he would grow out to be of use to his country and his family. Of all that we dare not think now and will not repine. He has missed every hour of the day, and the house has lost half its life. You can see in there the Albertine side of her nature. She's sorrowful not only for her own loss, but that of the country. She had been disappointed in the politics and prospects of her elder children, and now this one, who seemed so promising, was dead. And the troubles didn't stop there for the Hohenzollerns. In the spring of 1878, while driving through the streets of Berlin, Kaiser Wilhelm I was shot in the neck, back and arm, and just barely survived. Vicky and Fritz, who were in England at the time, rushed back to Berlin. Fritz was in floods of tears for his stricken father, while Vicky was actually a picture of calm. When he arrived in the city, he was asked to take temporary command of the government. Now, you may remember that Fritz's father has ruled as Prince Regent for many years before the death of his stricken father, and had basically done so with all the powers of the king. This would not be so this time. The Kaiser commanded Fritz to rule as he would, not according to Fritz's own conscience. He could advise, but Bismarck was really the man that would rule the empire. Moreover, the Iron Chancellor used the two assassination attempts as proof that the Liberal parties who had a majority in the Parliament were weak. In the ensuing election campaign, right-wing parties gained a bunch of seats, allowing Bismarck to pass a number of bills attacking the left, including a broad attack on socialism. Vicky and Fritz protested, but there was little they could do. In December of that year, the Kaiser recovered sufficiently to allow him to take back control, and Fritz gladly handed back the hollow regency. While she had been strong for her husband during this time, Vicky was suffering inside. What with the constant hostility at court, the seeming failure of her special mission, her troubled relationship with her eldest children and the recent bereavements, she seemed to have suffered a breakdown. She begged her in-laws to allow her to winter away from the court so that she may recover her strength, but of course they refused. This time, however, Fritz and Vicky put their collective foot down, and so they relented. She was allowed to travel to southern Austria, and from then on she went on a little tour of southern Europe. She would not return to Germany for nine months. She was apart from her family for much of this time, but of course they exchanged letters. Vicky bared her soul to her husband and eldest son. But while Fritz was ever the supportive husband, with Wilhelm it was quite different. The growing rift between them was growing ever more obvious. At one very low ebb, Vicky poured her heart out in a 28-page letter telling him of her fatigue, her misery, 
her anxiety, her homesickness. He never even bothered to answer, ashamed of her excessive emotion and womanish wailing. They did at least, however, manage to sweep these tribulations under the carpet in 1881, because wedding confetti was in the air. Wilhelm had fallen for his cousin Ella, the daughter of Vicky's sister Alice. His mother was worried, largely because of the closeness of the bloodlines. The spectre of haemophilia was already haunting the family of Victoria, as one of Alice's children had already bled to death because of the condition. We'll talk more about this in a later series, but suffice it to say that the family of Queen Victoria would be blighted by this dangerous hereditary condition. These objections eventually ended any chance of the marriage, with Wilhelm instead turning his eye to someone of whom his mother deeply approved. Her old friend, the Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, had a daughter named Donna. Well, she was actually called Victoria, but I'm not having yet another one of those, so we'll go by her pet name. Initially, the Kaiser disapproved of this match, as she was hardly wealthy, prestigious, or beautiful enough in his mind to be a future Empress of Germany. But Bismarck was keen on the match. She was not especially intellectually minded and lacked ambition. Bismarck didn't want another Vicky on his hands. They were married in February 1881, and his mother could not have been more proud. Yet if she had hoped that marriage would maketh her son into a man she would be very disappointed. Donna considered it her wifely duty to stroke his ego, and he indulged in that greatly, boasting of his military prowess and encouraging his militarism. Indeed, Vicky and Donna never got along particularly well. During her silver wedding anniversary reception in 1883, Donna refused to play the part that she was resigned, and made quite a bit of a scene. Donna was also wont to throw veiled insults at her mother-in-law, after the birth of her first son, Vicky suggested to Donna that she might want to get some tighter undergarments to restore her figure. Donna replied coldly that she had no intention of going to all that effort, only to lose it once again, as Wilhelm wanted more children immediately to secure the succession. Vicky didn't miss this reference to the fact that she had lost two sons young, and was deeply hurt. But Wilhelm would always be the great worry and disappointment of Vicky's life. His arrogance only grew as he aged. His hero worship of Bismarck only grew more fervent. His taunts at his un-German parents only grew more barbed. Politically, the 1880s started with a little more life being breathed into international liberalism. In the UK, the Liberal Party of William Gladstone won a stunning victory in the 1881 elections, while in Prussia, a group of disaffected liberals and progressives united to form the German Free Thinking Party. Its leaders were all close personal friends of Fritz, and they dedicated their party to the constitution, parliamentary democracy, free speech and free elections. Their aims indeed were so closely aligned with that of Fritz and Vicky that it informally became known as the Crown Prince's Party, aided by the fact that Fritz sent a telegram congratulating them on its formation. Bismarck was spooked, seeing this as the formation of some sort of united Anglo-German Liberal Party and sought to squash it. He needed wedge issues, something that could split this new coalition away from the crown prince and princess, and thought he had found it in that great 19th century tragedy, colonialism. Britain had, of course, been expanding its overseas territories for centuries, as had other nations such as France and Spain. Germany, on the other hand, had only just unified, 
and so had no overseas colonies. And the simple fact was that there were only so many portions of the globe that had yet to be seized by the Western powers. If Germany wanted a colonial empire, it would have to act fast. The liberals and progressives were divided over colonialism. Those on the right of the coalition saw it as a great way to expand Germany's prestige and enrich themselves, while those on the left feared that it would inevitably bring it into conflict with other European powers. Fritz was in favour, seeing it as Germany's patriotic duty. Vicky opposed it for a number of reasons, but mainly because she was worried it was yet another way for Bismarck to bolster his own support through military glory. She was not opposed to colonialism per se. She was firmly convinced of the widely held, if convenient, view that it was the duty of civilised Christian nations to spread their culture and faith to every corner of the globe. But in Germany's case, she thought that it would ultimately end in failure. And she wasn't alone. Bismarck himself had previously spoken out against Germany attempting to establish colonies, seeing such an enterprise as risky and expensive. It could also bring Germany into conflict with the greatest imperial power of them all, the UK. He'd only changed his mind in this case because he wanted to discredit Vicky and cause conflict between Fritz, who supported the colonial adventure, and the British, who feared it greatly. If it spoiled relations between the Crown Prince and his British wife, then so much the better. And he was quite open about it. Indeed, he said to the Russian Tsar that, quote, the sole object of German colonial policy was to drive a wedge between the Crown Prince and England. Yet, you should have listened to Vicky. While he did succeed in riling up the British, they would not be baited into war as easily as Napoleon III's France had been. New German possessions in the Pacific and East Africa were costly and didn't offer much in terms of commercial opportunities. That is not, of course, to mention the disaster that colonialism was for the natives of those regions, but that's another story. For our story, the main takeaway is that this episode just shows how desperate Bismarck was to ostracise and isolate Vicky. He was literally willing to go against his own better judgement, put Germany's reputation on the line, and conquer far-flung parts of the world just to make her look bad. But perhaps Vicky and Bismarck's greatest clash in this period came in the Bulgarian crisis. As usual, this involved one of her children, but, for a change, it wasn't Wilhelm. Now, I've hopefully managed to not get us too bogged down in the swamp that is late 19th century geopolitics, and I don't intend to start now. So, here is the quick and dirty explanation of the crisis. Bulgaria had been carved out of the Ottoman Empire by the Russians after they'd beaten them on the battlefield. The other powers of Europe were spooked by this expansion of Russian influence in this important part of the world and forced to rethink, which meant that this new territory was split, with part of it being incorporated into Austria-Hungary. Ruling this diminutive Bulgaria was Alexander I, or Sandro, as he was known to his friends. Remember him, we'll be back to him shortly. A feature of British foreign policy in this period was to ensure that Constantinople did not fall into Russian hands. The city was too important, too strategically positioned. Yet, of course, Bismarckian foreign policy was based around friendly relations with Russia. Remember that Germany was a nation surrounded by France to the west, Russia to the east, and the Royal Navy-controlled North Sea to the north. She could not allow herself to become encircled, 
and so friendly relations with Russia was crucial to her defensive position. Bismarck could then not countenance anything that might endanger the Russo-German friendship. Which is exactly what happened when Vicky dreamt up a grand marriage scheme. She wanted to unite Europe against Russian advances towards Constantinople by marrying her Anglo-German daughters off strategically to Balkan princes, with the centrepiece being a union between Moretta and Sandro. With it would come an agreement from all the other major powers of Europe to defend the new kingdom of Bulgaria and keep the Russian bear away from the Bosphorus. It was a bold scheme and destined for failure, as no one in Germany could possibly support it. Even Fritz opposed it. Quite apart from how it went against years of German foreign policy, it was a great risk for Moretta. Sandro's hold on power was weak. What if he was driven from power? Did Vicky really want her daughter to live the life of an exiled queen? He forbade Vicky from taking this fantasy any further, and clearly hoped that she would quietly drop it. But, unfortunately, Sandro had already jumped the gun and asked the Kaiser for Moretta's hand in marriage. To put it mildly, it did not go well. Kaiser Wilhelm raged at the man's impudence, while Sandro threatened to abandon Bulgaria to the Russians if he were not permitted to marry Moretta. No one, though, was more opposed to it than Bismarck, who ensured that the government-controlled press was churning out non-stop smear stories about Sandro. All fake news, but enough to utterly discredit him. In this, he had the backing of Prince Wilhelm, who sneered at his mother and sister's insistence on the marriage, seeing that it was yet another besmirching of German honour. Vicky and her daughter were under siege, and things were about to get worse when her niece, Victoria of Battenberg, married Sandro's brother, with Queen Victoria in attendance. Vicky looked like she was colluding with her British family against Germany. Against his better judgement, Fritz threw his weight behind his wife and daughter and publicly supported the marriage. Moretta was absolutely besotted with the Bulgarian, and Vicky was utterly convinced that this was the right thing to do. And this was aided by British backing. Her mother hosted Sandra at Balmoral, and her brother Bertie approved of the match as well. Once again, Fritz knuckled under when his mother insisted on a political move. At first, it looked like it had all paid off. In 1885, the Russian-backed Serbs invaded Bulgaria, but Sandra's forces won a surprising victory, forcing them back over the border. Vicky was so impressed by the man that she wanted for a son-in-law that she sent him a 28-page letter of congratulation. But it was not to last. The following year a gang of Russian army officers captured Sandro and forced him to abdicate the throne. The Bulgarian crisis had two major outcomes for Vicky. The first was that she had allowed herself once again to be painted as the British traitorous mole inside Germany, a Trojan horse of alien ideas and foreign values. By nailing her colours to her mother's mast in this crisis and against that of the German government, she had given reasonable men the opportunity to oppose her perhaps the greatest result was that this was the straw that broke the back of familial relations between her and Wilhelm. If he had been looking for a reason to break with his parents and find a platform from which he could defend his vision of Germany, then this was it. One former ally of Vicky put it this way, quote, With all my admiration for the crown princess, I cannot help regretting her attitude in this affair. 
inspired as it was so largely by her dislike and distrust of Russia. It compromised her in the eyes of the old emperor, and gave Prince Wilhelm a pretext once more to represent her as not caring for German interests, but playing England's game, even in family matters. In fact, it created between mother and son a breach, which was never healed, and put into the latter's hands a weapon which he used to the utmost. Vicky reacted to this situation by growing ever closer to her political allies in the German parliament, and this rather alarmed Fritz, who had a rather different view for what his ministry would look like. He told Bismarck that he intended to form a liberal government, one largely drawn from the right of the movement. But, and this was the crucial bit, he wanted Bismarck to lead it. While he disapproved of the man for a great many reasons, Fritz, just like so many Germans, could not envision of a Germany that did not have the Iron Chancellor at the helm. Bismarck agreed, but warned Fritz that his wife could scupper this whole plan. She wanted no part of Bismarck at the top, and it was feared that Fritz would just knuckle under to her demands, just as he always had. One ally of the Chancellor voiced a common refrain amongst Conservatives that Fritz was, quote, not a man at all, he has ideas of his own, unless she allows them. Bismarck told Fritz that if he wanted him to serve as his Chancellor, he had two terms. One, no parliamentary government, and two, no foreign influence in politics. Basically, he was asking him to repudiate his deeply held beliefs and sideline his wife in return for a smooth transition. There were whispers at court of getting the Kaiser to dissolve the marriage, for Vicky to be prevented from becoming empress when Fritz inherited the throne, or even of bypassing him entirely through a military coup, and placing Prince Wilhelm on the throne. The Reichstag may have a democratic majority, but the army had an authoritarian streak running in its veins. Everything was in play the vital years of 1887 and 1888. Fritz began 1887 on a very bad note. He had caught a chill, was suffering from persistent colds, and was struggling even to stand. While his 89-year-old father was able to carry out much of the business of government quite competently, his son could barely make himself heard he was so hoarse. He went to a doctor who found a lump on his vocal cords. He attempted to remove it, but every time he tried, it returned. His doctors recommended an operation that would split his larynx in half. Even if he survived, he would likely permanently lose the ability to speak properly. They told Vicky, who described herself as being, quote, more dead than alive with horror and distress. It was decided that the operation should take place in Britain. This was for two reasons. First, one of Europe's best cancer doctors was a Scot named Morel Mackenzie. But the second, and probably higher in Bismarck's mind, was that it meant that, if it all went wrong, the whole thing could be blamed on foreigners. While she was racked with worry, Vicky was delighted to be back at home. She was able to attend her mother's golden jubilee, and after the operation was carried out, they could pass time at all her old favourite childhood haunts, most especially Osborne House and Balmoral. The fresh sea and highland airs helped Fritz recover from his operations, and everyone was delighted to see that his voice was returning. Meanwhile, everyone in Germany was getting a little jumpy. The Kaiser was getting frailer by the day, and the heir to the throne was sick and in a foreign country. 
Conservatives were also worried that Fritz was becoming reindoctrinated into liberal ideas, while the Liberals were worried that without his parents around, Prince Wilhelm was gaining a lot of power and influence. They were needed back in Prussia, but Fritz was still far too sick to return to Berlin, so instead they went to the Austrian Alps to take the mountain air. His condition waxed and waned, but mostly it waned. He had no energy, he had no appetite. His voice was almost lost completely now. Worse, there were more swellings on his throat. There was no doubt about it now. It was laryngeal cancer. After another conference of his physicians, they told the crown prince that they needed to operate. But this would not cure him, it was just about prolonging his life. Vicky, white as a sheet and terrified out of her wits, nonetheless sat by his side throughout it all. A picture-perfect supportive wife. She would talk to him, with him replying with paper and pen. She would replace his bandages. She was perfect. Well, she was perfect, at least with him. For while Vicky's attention was fixed on her husband, she made another mistake. In an effort to keep negative reports about his condition out of the German press, she did not keep them informed up for its condition at all. This led to rumours, speculation... Why was she keeping the ill health of the heir to the throne a secret? Why had she listened to English doctors rather than German? Had they deliberately made him worse? Was she so keen to become empress that she would lie to the whole nation? In reaction, she wrote to her mother, quote, The interference, the attacks, the advice continue to pour down upon me, because we trouble Fritz as little as we can. The newspapers are filled with absolute lies. You know there is a party who have the representatives at this moment, even at our court, who insist that I am at the bottom of all the mischief. They also say this horrible operation would kill or cure Fritz, and that I have prevented it. They think Wilhelm would be better than an emperor suffering from an incurable malady. They say I try to hide the gravity of the situation from him, and I buoy him up with false hopes. She needed her family to rally around her. Prince Wilhelm, on the other hand, did, you know, the other thing. He brought a doctor of his own to examine his father, convinced that the ones his parents had chosen were foreign agents or something. This doctor said that he should immediately return to Berlin for treatment, but Vicky put her foot down. No, he was too weak. She asked her son if he'd walk with her, so that she could explain the situation, but he arrogantly brushed her aside. He was in charge here. She wrote that Wilhelm was, quote, as rude, as disagreeable, as impertinent to me as possible. But I pitched into him with considerable violence. She also reacted angrily to Wilhelm bringing up the prospect of Fritz stepping aside in the succession in favour of himself. Surely he couldn't think to rule in this state. Fritz angrily rejected this, but still people at home saw Vicky as the one forcing the crown prince to stay at his post, desperate to cloak herself in some imperial glory. If one goes by the five stages of grief, Vicky seems to be vacillating at this point between stage one and stage five, caught between hope and acceptance. She was devastated that her husband was dying, just as the throne seemed in his grasp, just as they had finally the chance to do some good for Germany. She loved him passionately and devotedly, and it hurt her deeply to see him in such pain and infirmity. When he rallied, she dared to dream. When that proved short-lived, she returned to acceptance. Mostly, she just feared what would happen next. But then, 
In March 1888, some news arrived from Berlin. The 91-year-old emperor was dying, for real this time. No one wanted Fritz to die on the road somewhere, but it was imperative that he get to the capital to receive the crown, even though he would only have it for a short while. But even as plans were made for him to return to Germany, another telegram arrived. The Kaiser is dead. Long live Kaiser Frederick III. Fritz gathered his family and household around him, and together they wrote out his own announcement of his acceptance to the throne. Once that was done, he removed from his jacket the badge of the Order of the Black Eagle. This was the highest honour in Prussia, the top of the chivalric chain. He pinned it on Vicky's dress. His wife collapsed into tears at this loving and thoughtful gesture. He then wrote out a note for his doctor to read out, for of course he could not speak. It read, quote, I thank you for having made me live long enough to recompense the valiant courage of my wife. And it is here, with Vicky finally becoming the Kaiserin, the Empress of Germany, that I will leave you here for this week. Next time, we will look at, sadly, the very short reign of Fritz as Emperor of Germany, and Vicky's attempts to finally bring liberalisation to the country. This had been the moment that she and her father Albert had been waiting for all this time. It had not been in vain, but it would be brief. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.